0: 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Alan Redpath said that you can get a spiritual suntan from the warmth of this chapter. So tonight we're just going to catch some rays from from this chapter. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan, another commentator, said something I think is pretty perceptive about this chapter. He said that examining this chapter is kind of like dissecting a flower to understand it. You can understand the flower if you take it apart, but then it's not a pretty flower anymore. And so while we're going to go through it very carefully tonight, and I've probably got more stuff in my notes here than we can go over in in one hour here tonight. Uh, Even though we have that together here, I encourage you, maybe tonight when you go home or through this week, you just sit down and just read it. And just appreciate the beauty of the whole flower together. Maybe you'll appreciate a little more as we take a look at how it's put together here tonight. Now, where we need to start is in chapter 12, verse 31, where Paul says, But earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. Paul has been dealing with the Corinthian church, and the Corinthian Christians were very enamored and active with spiritual gifts, and there was nothing wrong with that. In the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul praises them that they excel in spiritual gifts, and this was a good thing. But there was a priority problem in the Corinthian church. It wasn't that they were pursuing spiritual gifts. That wasn't the problem. It's that they were pursuing spiritual gifts to the neglect of something greater, to the neglect of a more excellent way. You can have in one side of you a good way to go, and you could have on the other side of you a more excellent way to go. And if you miss out on the more excellent way, even though you're on a good way, you're not where God really wants you to be. And now Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is going to talk to us about the more excellent way. But please, throughout the whole chapter, put it into the context in your mind. He's talking about the priority that love should have in relation to spiritual gifts among the Corinthian church and among churches today. First Corinthians 13, 1 Corinthians 13.1 Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I could have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Now the Corinthian Christians were enamored with spiritual gifts, particularly the gift of tongues, and Paul right off the bat in first verse of first Corinthians 13 reminds them that even the gift of tongues is meaningless without love. Friends, there's not much to explain on this is there? Look at verse 1 again. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become as a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Without love, a person may speak with the gift of tongues, but it's as meaningless as a sounding brass. It's as meaningless as a trumpet that's just blowing random notes. You've all done that, haven't you? You picked up somebody's trumpet. Well, I can play this, and you pick it up, and it just sounds horrible what comes out of there. Friends, that's how empty the exercise of the gift of tongues is if it's without love. Or a clanging cymbal. I could go over and, and start uh, clanging on one of these symbols on this drum set and do it to the best of my ability with all the rhythm I possess, and he'd say, this sounds horrible. <laughs> a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Friends, it's nothing but empty noise, the gifts in and of themselves, without love. That's interesting how Paul mentions in verse 1, tongues of men and of angels. It's led many people to think that Paul is describing here a heavenly language, the language that angels may have. And it's a little bit difficult to understand this exactly. This is the only kind of reference we have in the Bible. But he may very well be referring to angelic languages that the angels have that they communicate to one another with. And God, in the gift of tongues, which we'll be talking much more about next week when we're together, but he may be referring to the fact that God may give a language of angels to somebody and a gift of communication between that person and God. And in verse 2, he says, And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. You can prophesy, you can have all knowledge, you can have the faith to do miracles. It's irrelevant without love. The Corinthian Christians were missing the motive of the gifts. They were missing the goal of the gifts. Friends, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are not goals in and of themselves. Nobody should be satisfied if at a meeting of believers they say, We had a prophecy, as if that was the goal. We had a miracle, as if that was the goal. Friends, the goal is love. And you can have all the miracles. You can have all the prophecies. You can have all this or that. If it doesn't result in love, friends, look at it, please. In verse 2, he says, you're nothing. It's nothing. It's meaningless. How rarely this is believed among people who hunger for spiritual gifts. It's interesting how Paul talks about the faith which can remove mountains, right? He's obviously quoting from Jesus in Matthew chapter 17 where Jesus said, if you had faith as of mustard seed, you could say to that mountain, be removed. And what an amazing thing it would be to have faith that could work the impossible. But friends, even that kind of faith is nothing without love. A man with faith could move mountains. But you know what he'd do with it? If he didn't have love, he'd take that mountain and he'd set it down right in somebody's way. Or he'd set it down right on top of somebody more likely, Right? Friends, what good is it? The goal, the motive is love. And friends, let me point out that it is not an issue of love versus the gifts. A church should never be forced to choose between love and the gifts. It's not, well, what's it going to be? Is it going to be love or the gifts? No, it's not a choice between the two. Paul is emphasizing the focus and the goal of the gifts. It's love. It's not the gifts for their own sake. But we don't have to choose between them. Well, what's it going to be? Love or gifts? Love or gifts of the Holy Spirit? No! You have both, but you have them in the proper order. You have the proper perspective in mind. If you notice here, Paul says in verse 2, that if I have all faiths that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And when Paul says love, he's using the Greek word agape. The ancient Greeks had four different words that we translate love. And it's important to understand the difference between the words and why the Apostle Paul chose the Greek word agape here. Now, we use the word love in a very broad context. I could say, uh, I love a double-double from in and out I love surfing. And I love my wife. Let's hope I don't mean it all in the same way when I say each one of those. Right? I mean, but we use the same word to apply to each one of them. But the Greeks had a much more refined, a much more specific language, and they had four main words that they used for love. The first word we can consider was the Greek word eros. That was the word, uh, as you might guess from the word itself, for erotic love. It refers to sexual love. The second word for love we can consider is the Greek word storge. It refers to a family love, the kind of love that there is between a parent and a child or between family members in general. The third kind of love we can talk about is philea love. It speaks of a brotherly friendship and affection. It's the love of deep friendship and partnership. But then the fourth kind of love, the kind of love that Paul is talking about here when he says if we have not love, he uses the word agape. And and agape is a love that loves without changing. It's a self-giving love that gives without demanding or expecting repayment. It's a love so great that it can be given to the unloving and the unappealable. Unappealing, I should say. It's love that loves even when it's rejected. Agape love loves and it gives because it wants to. It doesn't demand or expect repayment from the love given. It gives because it loves and it does not expect repayment for the love that's given. According to Alan Redpath, he says that we get our English word agony from agape. This is what he says, quote, It means the actual absorption of our being into one great passion. And please, sometimes that word agape is erroneously defined as God's love. That's what, it's the love of God. Well, in a sense that's true, but that's not all-encompassing. You know, in uh, John chapter 3, verse 19, it says that men perish because they love the darkness. You know what it says? It says they agape the darkness. See, my friends, it's not necessarily God's love, which is agape, but it's defined as a sacrificial, giving, absorbing love. And that's how people love sin, don't they? They love it sacrificially. They love it with absorption. They give everything they have to it. And that's how people love sin when they're in darkness. Let me say something else about this word for agape. The Greek word agape has very little to do with emotion. It has much to do with self-denial for the sake of another. Now, friends, I, I point this out because it's very important to see that we can read this chapter and think that what Paul is talking about is that he's saying that if we're unfriendly, our lives mean nothing. Paul is not talking about friendliness when he talks about love. You know, hi, how you doing? I'm a friendly person. How are you? You know, and that kind of thing. He's not talking about the kind of thing you can learn at a Dale Carnegie course. Friends, This is not just friendliness. Agape isn't really friendliness. Do you know what agape is? It is self-denial for the sake of another. That's agape love. Now, going on here, he's going to talk more about this love in verse 3. He says, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Paul says, listen, I could give away everything I have to feed the poor, but if I don't have love, it's nothing. That's what Jesus told the rich young ruler to do, right? You want to follow me? Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. The rich young ruler didn't do it. But you know what, friends, even if he would have, and if he didn't have love, it would have profited him nothing. And then he says, though I give my body to be burned, I don't have love, it profits nothing. Friends, do you realize that even if I lay my life down in dramatic martyrdom apart from love, it's of no value? Now, normally, we would never doubt the spiritual credentials of someone who would give away everything they had, of someone who would give up their life in a dramatic martyrdom. I mean, who's going to question that, right? Here I am, I'll take a bullet for the Lord. Burn my body. And friends, I want you to notice something, what he says here in verse 3. He says, and though I give my body to be burned. No, they don't have to hunt me out. I'll walk out there and say, I'm a Christian. I'll give my body to be burned. Friends, that kind of, of commitment, that kind of passion, everybody would look at me and they say, wow, you know, who's going to question his walk with the Lord? Wow, what a walk with the Lord. Paul says you can do all that, and if you don't have love, it profits you nothing. That's almost hard to believe, isn't it? It's hard to believe that somebody could have all kinds of spiritual gifts, could have all kinds of miracle-working faith, could give away every possession they owned, that they could lay down their life in a dramatic martyrdom, but if they do not have love, Paul says it doesn't matter. Now, there were some early Christians who were so arrogant as to think that the blood of martyrdom would wash away any sin. They were so proud about their ability to endure suffering for Jesus. They thought it was the most important thing in the Christian life. Friends, it is important. If you're going to be a Christian, you better be prepared to endure some suffering for the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not the most important thing. Without love, it profits me nothing. Now let me make a few points here. First of all, some people believe that when Paul talks about giving my body to be burned, some people think he's not talking about being burnt at the stake, being executed. Some people think he's talking about receiving a brand that they would sometimes put on a criminal or someone who was a Christian. And he says, I could get my body to be burned in this way and identified and shamed as a Christian, but if I don't have love, it, matters. it really doesn't matter, does it? I mean, it's the same idea one way or the other. And then some of you who may have some different translations, it may something, say something like, if I give up my body that I may glory or that I may boast. Well, that's the reading in some manuscripts. I don't think that's the most reliable reading. But again, even if it were, the meaning's the same and the difference is really minor. Friends, you could lay down your life for the Lord and, and lay it down. Without love, it matters nothing. Nothing. Now, let me make the point here, my friends. Many Christians believe, and you may have come here tonight believing, that what the Christian life is really all about is sacrifice. You know, that's what it's all about, the Christian life. Sacrifice. You've got to sacrifice your money. You've got to sacrifice your life. You've got to sacrifice it all for the cause of Jesus Christ. Now, friends, sacrifice is important. Far be it from me to suggest that it is not. But without love All of that sacrifice is useless. It profits me nothing. I want you to notice something else here. Look at the things he describes in the first three verses. Uh, Tongues, prophecy, knowledge, faith, sacrifice. Are every one of those things good things? Anything bad on that list? There's nothing bad. Tongues are good. Prophecy and knowledge and faith are good. Sacrifice is good. But friends, love is so valuable. Love is so important that apart from it, every other good thing is useless. Sometimes we make a great mistake of letting go of what is best for something that's good, but not best. The Corinthian Christians were enamored with gifts. Hey, gifts are good. But they're not the best. Love is the best. Always keep that perspective. Now in verse 4, Paul begins a passage here where he's going to describe for us what love is all about. You, you get the theme in the first three verses, right? This is how important love is. You don't have love, nothing else matters, right? Can we just translate and summarize the first three verses that way? And how about verse 4? He's going to begin to describe love. Verse 4. Love suffers long and is kind. Now, the first thing Paul does is he lists two things that love is. You see, he's going to talk to us about love by telling us what love is and what it isn't. The first thing he does is he tells us what love is. Love is long-suffering. It suffers long. And love is kind. Now, I want you to see something at the very beginning. He goes, love is described by Action words, Paul is letting us know. Do you understand that? Friends, he doesn't say here, love is a many-splendored thing. (laughs) He's not talking about emotions. He's not talking about feelings, although there can be wonderful emotions and feelings in love. Friends, he's describing what love is in action words, because that's agape. It may not be eros, it may not be philea, it may not be storge, but agape love is all about self-denial. It's all about giving for someone else. Paul isn't talking about how love feels. He's talking about how it can be seen in action. True love is always demonstrated in action. And the first action he says is he says that love suffers long. Love will endure a long time. Aren't you glad that God suffers long with you? In 2 Peter chapter 3, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness, but as long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Aren't you glad that God suffered long with you? Aren't you glad the Lord didn't come five years ago, ten years ago? Yeah, remember all those Christians? They were praying for the Lord to come ten years ago? You're glad their prayers weren't answered, aren't you? And now look at you. You're praying, come today, Lord. Come before you know, school starts. Come before the year. Come before the holidays, Lord. I can't take another Christmas. Please, Lord. Well, I don't blame you for praying. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. But why doesn't he come? Because God suffers long. He has that kind of love. And if God's love is in us, we will be long-suffering to those who annoy us and hurt us. Friends, the ancient preacher John Chrysostom said that this word long-suffering or suffers long is used of the man who is wronged and who easily has the power to avenge himself. But he will not do it out of mercy and patience. Now look, let's be honest, just between you and me, there's nobody else here tonight. Just between you and me, the main reason we don't get revenge is because we don't have the opportunity. A lot of times when we have the opportunity, or the right opportunity, we're more than happy to take revenge. What Paul says love is all about, it's about the person who has the opportunity but doesn't take it out of mercy and out of patience. Friends, do you avenge yourself as soon as you have the opportunity or do you suffer long? That's what love is. But love not only suffers long, he also says in verse four that it is kind. When we have and show God's love, it will be shown in simple acts of kindness. You know how I think you can tell who the kind people are? The kind people are the people that kids want to be around. Kids know kindness, don't they? Kids don't like to be around mean people. You, you and I can tolerate it because we're kind of grumpy ourselves and, you know, we're, and, and we're just used to it. But kids? Kids don't like to be around mean people. They won't receive and respond from unkind people. But friends, if we're kind, we're going to be the kind of people tender-hearted and gentle towards one another. Okay, if love suffers long and if it is kind, what is love not? Well, that picks up in the middle of verse 4. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. Here are eight things that love is not. The first thing it is, not, is that love does not envy. Friends, envy is one of the least productive and most damaging of all sins. Envy accomplishes nothing except to hurt. Love keeps its distance from envy. Love does not resent it when somebody else is promoted or blessed. Clark describes the heart which does not envy. He says, they are ever willing that others should be preferred before them. How do you like it when other people are preferred before you? How do you like it when you're not first in line? How do you like it when you're slighted? If you have love, you don't mind because you don't envy. Envy, it's a small sin, right? It's not a big one. Friends, you know envy murdered Abel? Envy? Envy enslaved Joseph? Envy put Jesus on the cross. Do you realize that? Let me read you Matthew 27, 18. It said of Pilate, for he knew that they handed him over because of envy. That's what put Jesus on the cross. Adam Clark says, many persons cover a spirit of envy and uncharitableness with the name of godly zeal and tender concern for the salvation of others. They find fault with all. Their spirit is a spirit of universal criticism. None can please them and everyone suffers by them. These destroy more souls by their scrupulous observance of the law than others do by neglecting weightier manners of the law. Such persons have what is termed, and very properly to a sour godliness. Love does not envy. But it also, verse 4, does not parade itself. You know, this is what's so great about love. Love and action, agape love, can work anonymously. It doesn't need the limelight or the attention to do a good job or to be satisfied with the result. Love gives because it loves to give, not out of a sense of praise that it can have from showing itself off. Friends, sometimes this is a trap for some preachers to get into. You know, they, they don't think they've preached a good sermon unless people praise them afterwards. Can I tell you, that's a poor preacher. That's a preacher who doesn't understand love in the fullest way. There's other people who just, unless they're getting some kind of glory, unless they're getting some kind of credit, unless they can be on display, it doesn't really matter. Friends, love doesn't parade itself. Sometimes the people who work the hardest at love are those who are the furthest from it. They do many things that would be perceived as loving, yet they do it in a manner which would parade itself. This isn't love. It's pride looking for glory by the appearance of love. Let's say I want to make a contribution, and you know there's some charitable work going on, and you know here I am, I want to make a contribution, and, and uh, here I'll write out a big check. But it's not enough that I just write out a check and mail it to him. No, 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 no. I got to call the press and get the big poster board check, right? And hand it to him with the photographers clicking the shutter. You know, me smiling, here it is. Is that love? No, you're parading itself. Love does not parade itself, but also, verse 4, it is not puffed up. You know what puffed up means? means you got a swelled head. It means that you're arrogant and self-focused. Love doesn't get its head swelled. It focuses on the needs of others. Friends, both the desire to parade itself and the desire to be puffed up, it's simply rooted in pride. Spiritual pride's the worst of all. You know, pride of uh, of face is obnoxious, pride of race is vulgar, but the worst pride is the pride of grace. Don't parade yourself. Don't be arrogant. Be humble. You know, the happy people you'll meet in your life are humble people. Proud people are almost always miserable, or at least half the time. Because if you're a proud person, sure, maybe half the time in your life you'll be getting the strokes and people will be praising you, but probably at least half the time you'll be getting criticized or hammered by somebody. You know, if you've got a humble heart, you can be happy all the time. William Carey was a man thought by many people to be the founder of the modern missionary movement. He lived in the 1700s, and Christians all over the world know who he was and they honor him. He came from a very humble place. He was a cobbler a shoe repairman, when God called him to reach the world for Jesus Christ. And because he was raised up in a prominent place, um, he got invited to some fancy things. And one day he was at a party when a very snobbish British lord tried to insult him publicly. And this is what the British lord said very loudly. He said, (laughs) Mr. Carey, I hear that you were once a shoemaker. And he thought that would insult him publicly at this dinner party. Oh, a lowly shoemaker. You know what Carey replied? Carey replied, no, my lord, I wasn't a shoemaker. I only repaired shoes. (laughs) Now, friends, today the name of William Carey is remembered, but nobody remembers who that snobbish lord was. Carey's love showed itself in not having a big head about himself. Verse 5, love does not behave rudely. You know, where there's love, there's going to be kindness and good manners. Uh, Perhaps not in the stuffy, you know, look at how cultured I am. I know how to hold my pinky the right way at the teacup. Maybe not manners in that kind of way, but in the simple way that people who love do not behave rudely. Friends, if we love one another, we're going to be courteous to each other. We're going to do the things that are loving. Adam Clark says, no ill-bred man or what is called rude or unmannerly is a Christian. Wow, you got bad manners, you're not a Christian is what he's saying. Well, friends, love, love is not rude. It goes on here in verse 5, love does not seek its own. You know, Paul communicates the same thought in a couple other letters. In Romans chapter 12, he says that we should be in honor, giving preference to one another. And in Philippians chapter 2, he carries the same thought. He says, let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. Friends, this is being like Jesus in the most basic way. You know what Jesus was more than anything else? Jesus was an others-centered person. He didn't live for himself. He lived for others. If you live for yourself, if you seek your own... Friends, you're not being like Jesus. You don't have the love of God in your life. Friends, if you only care about your own happiness, your own comfort, if you don't care about others and how the world goes, friends, I don't know if you're a Christian. I don't know if you have the love of God in your heart. It goes on here, verse 5. Love does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked. Oh, Lord, help me to love. Sometimes I'm so easily provoked. Sometimes I'm so easily irritated and annoyed. You know why I'm so easily irritated and annoyed? Because there's a lot of annoying people in this world. That's why. No, it's because the love of God isn't perfected in my heart yet. Friends, and this isn't a small sin. Do you realize that Moses was kept from the promised land because he became provoked at the people of Israel and struck the rock instead of speaking to it, he just lost his temple and got irritated, annoyed. He got provoked. And he was kept from the promised land because of that. Friends, when you're embittered against your neighbor, when you're irritated and annoyed at your neighbor, you're not loving him as yourself because when you do the same things to your neighbor, you just laugh it off and expect them to forgive you. You know how it is. You're driving down the road and you cut somebody off. Oh, whoops, sorry, ha ha! You raise up. Sorry. How are you when somebody cuts you off? All right, I'm going to kill them. Ah, oh, you see, friends, if you just love others as yourself, you won't be provoked. Going on here, verse five. "Does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks, no evil. Love thinks no evil. Literally, this means love does not store up the memory of any wrong it has received. Love will put away the hurts of the past instead of clinging to them. Friends, how about it? You got some skeletons in your closet? Maybe they're not your own skeletons. Maybe they're somebody else's. Doesn't matter. Get them out of there. Don't cling to those things. Friends, don't invent evil. Don't look for evil in other people. Love, it says here, thinks no evil. And then verse 6, love does not rejoice in iniquity. It's willing to want the best for others. It refuses to color things against others. Instead, love rejoices in the truth. Love can always stand with and on the truth because love is good and pure like the truth. Friends, love does not rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices in truth. Right there are eight things that love is not. Now in verse 7, he shifts back to four more things that love is. And I love this verse. You know why I love this verse? Because I just read the ripiness sermon by Charles Spurgeon on this one verse, verse 7. I'm pumped up about this verse. Look at what he says here. He says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Spurgeon calls these four virtues, loves Four sweet companions. Strong, believing, hopeful, enduring. And you know the words that drive me crazy in verse 7? It's those two little words. All things. Listen, I would have hoped Paul would have chosen any phrase but that. All things. Do you know what that means? Do you know what it means in the original Greek? It means all things. (laughs) Friends, I can't get us out of this with some fancy word study. Uh, Listen, we can all bear some things. We can all believe some things. We can all hope some things. We can all endure some things. But God calls us farther and deeper into love for him and to love for one another and into love for a perishing world to where we would do those with all things. Spurgeon said, you must have fervent charity toward the saints, but you will find very much about the best of them which will try your patience. For like yourself, they are imperfect and they will not always turn their best side towards you, but sometimes sadly exhibit their infirmities. Be prepared, therefore, to contend with all things in them. You say, I don't know if I can do it. It's not easy. Of course it's not easy. Agape love doesn't ask for the easy way. Listen, self-love asks for the easy way. Indulgence asks for the easy way. Agape love will deny herself. It'll sacrifice herself so that she may win great victories for God. Friends, let me tell you, it's for agape love that God has a great crown. It's not some little tinsel, tinfoil crown in heaven. No, it's love that costs us something that God rewards us so richly for. All things, all things, all things. And what's the first all thing? Love, verse 7, it bears all things. Now that word bears, you can think of it as holding up right I'm, I'm i'm enduring i'm holding up but actually it might be better translated covers all things love covers all things remember that first peter 4 8 how about this one you got a problem with bitterness in your heart towards somebody then don't listen to first peter 4 8 you got a problem with it don't hear me now as i read first peter 4 8 listen Above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Well, you sinned against me, but I love you. It'll cover over. Spurgeon said, love covers. That is, it never proclaims the errors of good men. There are busybodies abroad who never spy out a fault in a brother, Except that they have to go hurry off to their next neighbor with the savory news. And then they run up and down the street as though they had been elected the common criers. It is by no mean honorable to men or women to set up to be common informers. Yet I know some who are not so half eager to publish the gospel as they are to publish slander. Love stands in the presence of a fault with a finger on her lip. That's how love is. It covers over things. You know how we should be? We should be like the oyster. Oh yeah, that's right. You know, that little sand, that little irritation gets in you. And what do you do with it? That hurtful particle comes into your shell and it it grieves you, it vexes you. You can't get rid of it. You can't push it out. It's there, you're stuck with it. So what do you do? You cover it. You cover it with a precious substance. The whole basis of your life itself goes into it. And what does it do to that grain of sand? It turns it into a pearl. Friends, you need those pearls in your life. You need those pearls of patience and gentleness and long-suffering and forgiveness. And friends, how else is God going to have those pearls fashioned in you unless that grain of sand comes in and irritates you and you can't get rid of it? No, all we do is pray around, Lord, get rid of that greatness. Get rid of it. It's irritating me. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. God says, I want to make a pearl out of it. And it's going to be a glorious ornament to you. Love covers all things, it bears all things. Verse 7 also says that love believes all things. You know, friends, we'll never believe a lie, right? Love will never believe that somebody's going to heaven when they're really going to hell. But we will not believe evil unless the facts demand it. We're not going to believe evil based on rumor, based on innuendo. No, we choose to believe the best of others. And can I tell you, when you choose to believe the best of others, it's going to cost you somewhere down the line. You're going to get burned. You're going to get ripped off. But love will allow itself to do that. See, love, as far as she can, will believe in her fellow man. Spurgeon said that he wished the gossips would spend a little bit of time exaggerating other people's virtues and go from house to house trumping up the, the pretty stories of their acquaintances. He said, listen, I'm against all kinds of lying, but that's a kind of lying I wouldn't mind if people did. You went on lying about how good other people were. He said, God might almost be pleased with that. <laughs> Friends, love bears all things. It believes all things. Verse 7 says, love hopes all things Love has a confidence in the future, not a pessimism. Do you know somebody's lost all confidence in the future? They look at their relationships, they look at their situation, they say, "Forget it. It's hopeless. Nothing good can ever come from this." When love is hurt, it doesn't say it's going to be this way forever, and it's even going to get worse. Love hopes for the best, and it hopes in God. It hopes all things, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. Oh, not this last one, Paul endures all things. Oh, friends. Can I be straight with you? I can do it. I can do it. I can bear all things. I can believe all things. I can hope all things. I just can't do it for very long. (laughs) But when love is perfected in me, we can bear all things and believe all things and hope all things and keep on bearing, and believing, and hoping. Real love endures all things. It doesn't give up. It destroys enemies by turning them into friends. Friends, stand fast in love. Prove yourself to be a Christian. Spurgeon, in his sermon on this verse, saw these four qualities as love's four soldiers against evil. And he says, we can send them out in succession. When evil comes against you, first send out, love bears all things. You face evil with patience because love bears all things. Spurgeon said, let the injury be inflicted. We will forgive it and not be provoked. Even 70 times seven, we will bear in silence. Well, if that isn't enough, then we're going to send out faith. We'll battle evil with faith because love believes all things. We look to God and his promises and we believe them. If that's not enough, then we'll overcome a third time by hope, because love hopes all things. He says quote, we rest in expectation that gentleness will win, and that long suffering will wear out malice, for we look for the ultimate victory of everything that is true and gracious. Finally, we finish our battle with perseverance, for love endures all things. He says, we abide faithful to our resolve to love. We will not be irritated unto unkindness. We will not be perverted from generous, all-forgiving affection. And so we win the battle by steadfast non-resistance. Spurgeon concludes his thought and he says, Yes, brethren, and love conquers on all four sides. What a brave mode of battle this is. Is not love a man of war? Is it not invincible? Friends, if you have love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things, that love is going to triumph in your life because it is the love of God and nothing can overcome the love of God. Ladies and gentlemen, Satan had his best shot at the love of God. At the cross, you saw the worst of mankind's and Satan's hatred at the cross. It doesn't get any worse than that. You saw the worst of it at the cross and you saw the most glorious example of the love of God. That was agape through and through. The love of God and the evil of Satan and a man did battle at the cross, and let me tell you who won. An empty tomb tells us that the love of God won, and will always win. Now, of course, if you want to know the best way to understand all these descriptions of love, the two things that it is, the eight things that it's not, and then the four more things that it is, The best way to understand each one of them is to see them in the life of Jesus. You know, you could replace the word love with the name Jesus, and it would make perfect sense. Have you ever done that? Take a look here. He says, verse 4, Jesus suffers long and is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not parade himself. He's not puffed up. He does not behave rudely. He does not seek his own. Hey, you go, yeah, 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 that's my Lord. That's my Jesus. And they say, okay, now put your name in there. And you don't get very far where you just start laughing, right? Oh, my gosh. Friends. We are being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And every year that goes by, it should sound a little bit less ridiculous to put your name in the place of love in this chapter. And let's remind ourselves that there's a reason why Paul puts this chapter in the midst of a discussion on spiritual gifts. Paul wants the Corinthian Christians to remember that giftedness is not the measure of maturity, the display of love is. Now, he's talked to us about the value of love. He's talked to us about what love is. Now he concludes the chapter with the permanence of love. Verse 8. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. Friends, love never fails. It never lets you down. Therefore, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are appropriate for now. The gifts will pass away. He says, verse 8, prophecies will fail, tongues they will cease, knowledge it will vanish away. Those things are temporary, but love is permanent. The gifts, look, they're given right now. They're imperfect gifts for an imperfect time. Do you know why the gifts are imperfect? Because they use us. Friends, love, oh, that never fails. But there's going to come a day when that which is perfect comes. Then we won't need the gifts anymore, but love will still be around. Now, what is that which is perfect? I raise the issue because for some people who do not believe that the miraculous gifts of the Spirit are being given by God today, this is a big point to them, because they say that that which is perfect, typically they say, is the New Testament. And once God gave us the New Testament, then all the gifts went away. You see their logic there? Well, they say, look, that which is perfect, that's the New Testament. And Paul says that when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part is done away. God will just revoke all the miraculous gifts once. When that which is perfect, then they say it's the New Testament has come. friends, virtually all commentators are agreed that that which is perfect refers to when we are in the eternal presence of the perfect one. When we're with the Lord forever, either by him coming to us or we going to him. That's perfection. Might I say also here, and I I hope I'm not saying this kind of to confuse anybody, but I I should just make the point because you may run across it sometime or another. Look at verse 8 again carefully. It says, love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail, whether there are tongues, they will cease, whether there is are knowledge, it will vanish away. Many people who believe that the miraculous gifts ended with the apostles claim that since the verb will cease is not in the passive voice, but in the middle voice, I don't expect you to understand that. It's an incitivity of Greek grammar, but they say that it could be translated, tongues will stop by themselves. In other words, some people will say that verse 8 is telling us in the technicalities of Greek grammar that, well, yeah, a prophecy will fail, tongues will stop all by themselves, all on their own, and knowledge will vanish away. Can I just tell you that this analysis sounds scholarly? And the people who hold it like to promote it with a lot of confidence and when you hear them preach it, you'd never guess in a million years that there's anything wrong with it. Can I just say that it's not true? It's disregarded by virtually all Greek scholars. And might I say, even if it was true, even if it was true that this verse said that tongues will cease all on their own, friends, it does nothing to suggest when tongues will cease. One writer claims. Tongues ceased in the apostolic age, and when they stopped, they stopped for good. But friends, this passage not only doesn't tell us that tongues will stop by themselves, it tells us that tongues will cease when the perfect has come. And we're not there yet. You see, look at it again in verse 8, please. Paul says, prophecies will fail, tongues, they will cease, knowledge, it will vanish away. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is not trying to say that prophecies, tongues, and knowledge all have different fates. He's simply writing well and saying the same thing three different ways. You know, that's what people do with good writing. I think God's a good writer. I think the Holy Spirit knew what he was doing. You're just saying the same thought, just you're using different words because it sounds better. It catches us better. They will all end, but love never fails. By the way, too, before we go on to verse 12, or excuse me, verse 11, do you see here in verse 9, he says, we know in part and we prophesy in part. And some people believe that prophecy is nothing but good preaching. We hear people preaching good, then that's prophecy. That's what prophecy is all about. Friends, I can tell you right now that, that this proves that prophecy isn't just good preaching. Because, friends, there's nobody just preaching in part these days. Sometimes people wish the preacher would just speak in part, but they just go on and on. And it's like, no, it just continues on. No, my friends, it's, it's a lot more than a part. Verse 11. when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know, just as I also am known. Friends, childish things are appropriate for children. And the gifts are appropriate for our present time. But the gifts of the Holy Spirit will not be appropriate forever. There's going to come a day when we outgrow them, when we go on to glory. And Paul draws on the image here, verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, when we can fully see Jesus, when we see him crystal clear, you're not going to need the gifts of the Holy Spirit anymore. Until then, I dare say we need them. But friends, there's going to come a day when you're going to need these supernatural aids. You're going to just see Jesus face to face. And then the gifts of the Holy Spirit will be overshadowed by the immediate presence of Jesus. You know, it'll be like the sun rising and you don't need the candles anymore. But now in the darkness of the present age, when we can just see dimly, we need them. But one day we will see him face to face. There's not going to be any more barriers between us and our relationship with God. Oh, my friends, now we see in a mirror. Friends, this speaks again to the perfect fellowship with God we're one day going to have. Now today, when you look in a good mirror, the image is clear, right? You could go into the bathroom, well, there's a mirror, I can see myself. But in the ancient world, mirrors were made out of polished metal. And you've looked in polished metal, right, and seen your reflection. It's not crystal clear, it's kind of fuzzy, it's kind of distorted, it's not real sharp, it's not a great image. And friends, that's how we see Jesus now. We see him, we can see his outline, but it's not crystal clear. It's a little distorted. We don't see it with the kind of clarity that we'd like to see Jesus. But one day, we're going to see him that clearly. One day, we are going to know, as he says here, verse 12, just as I also am known. Friends, one day, you're going to know God like he knows you. Now, please, I'm not trying to say that we're going to be as all-knowing as god we're not going to know everything god knows but it does mean we're going to know him as perfectly as we can do you know god as perfectly as you can right now no way far short of it one day you will one day you're going to know him as perfectly as any human being can possibly know him now can i just tell you that we couldn't handle this greater knowledge on this side of eternity If you knew more of your own sinfulness, if you knew more of God's glory right now, you might die of terror. If you had more understanding of it, you couldn't handle it. God's given us as much now as we can handle. But friends, one day, we're going to be able to handle so much more, and God's going to give us more, and we're going to see Him face to face. Friends, and isn't this what makes heaven precious to us? Heaven is precious to us for many reasons. You've got relatives that you want to see there, right? You think of people that you know and love who have gone on before, and you want to see them there. You want to get to heaven and see them, and that's a good thing. That's great. You should want heaven for that. You should have heaven precious to your heart because you want to be reunited with people that you know and love who have gone to heaven before you. We want to go to heaven because we want to be with the great men and women of God who have gone before us. I want to sit down and talk with John Calvin and with Martin Luther and with John Wesley. I want to talk with Augustine and Paul and Peter, James and John. I want to talk to all of them. I want it. I want to walk the streets of gold. I want to see the pearly gates. I want to see the angels around the throne of God worshiping Him day and night. But friends, as great as all of those things are, none of those things in and of themselves make heaven heaven. You know what makes heaven heaven? The unhindered, the unrestricted presence of our Lord. To know Him just as He knows me And that's going to be the greatest experience of yours or my or anybody's eternal existence. Spurgeon said, the streets of gold will have small attraction to us. The harps of angels will but slightly enchant us compared with the king in the midst of the throne. He it is who shall rivet our gaze, absorb our thoughts, enchain our affection, and move all our sacred passions to the highest pitch of celestial ardour. We shall see Jesus. Friends, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are necessary and appropriate for this present age because we're not yet fully mature, because now we only know in part, but there's going to come a day when the gifts are unnecessary, but that day hasn't come yet. So we wrap it up with verse 13. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. The three great pursuits of the Christian life are not miracles, power, and gifts. Those are not the three great pursuits of the Christian life. If that's where your Christian life is focused, you're missing the mark. The three great pursuits are faith, hope, and love. And though the gifts are precious, and though they're given by the Holy Spirit today, they were never meant to be the focus of our Christian life. Instead, we pursue faith, hope, and love. Friends, what's your Christian life focused on? What do you want more of? It should all come back to faith, hope, and love. But because faith, hope, and love are so important, they're emphasized again and again throughout the New Testament. Paul writes things like 1, Corinthians, or 1 Thessalonians 1, 1.3. He says, Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God our Father. In First Thessalonians chapter 5, he says, But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. It's all through the New Testament. You go faith, hope, love. It's again and again and again. But friends, faith, hope, and love, those are the big three. But what's the greatest? Love. You see that? Verse 13. Now abide faith, hope, love these three but the greatest of these is love. Now, I'm glad Paul said that because I would have been hard pressed to pick between the three. God would have just told me, "Okay, you got the big 3 here, faith, hope and love. Which one is the greatest?" I say, "Oh, well, faith. Oh, we got to have faith. Oh, hope, we got to have hope. Love, we need to have. Which one is greatest?" God tells you which one is greatest. And you know why? Well, one reason why love is the greatest is because it will continue and even grow in the eternal state. When you get to heaven, you're not going to need faith anymore, friends. When you get to heaven, you're going to need hope anymore. All your hopes are going to be fulfilled. You don't need faith. You don't need hope. But there's always going to be love between the Lord and among other believers. And we're going to grow in that love throughout eternity. I would also say that love is the greatest because it's an attribute of God. The Bible says that God is love. It doesn't say God is faith. It doesn't say God is hope. But God is love. God does not have faith the way that we have faith. What does he have to trust outside of himself? God doesn't have hope the way we have hope. What does God hope for? Then God in heaven saying, oh, I hope this happens. (laughs) Friends, God doesn't have faith. God doesn't have hope, not like we do. But God is love. And God will always be love. Fortunately, my friends, we don't have to choose between faith, hope, and love. Paul isn't trying to make us choose. He isn't trying to say, okay, you just can only have one. No, we'll take it all. But he wants to emphasize the point to us all. Without love as the motive and goal, the gifts are meaningless distractions. Friends, if you lose love, you lose everything. I don't know what else to say other than to say, Lord, give us your love. We need to receive your love, and we need to shine it forth. So let's pray. Lord, we're humbled by the glory of your love. It really is, Lord God, more than we can truly understand. It really is more than we can take in. But we know there's something so majestic, so powerful, so glorious in your love. We're just amazed in the face of it. Lord God, help us to receive your love and to be vessels of your love. Make it, Lord, where we can put our name in the description of that love and that other people would see it in us. We receive your love. And we want you to work in our lives so that love is really the focus. It's not miracles and power and glory. It's faith, hope, and love. Help us, Lord. We love you, God. Increase our love in Jesus' name. Amen.